I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the June 20, 2022 issue. We're in Season 2, and this is Episode 5. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together each week to not only talk about what's new, but to reflect carefully on how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past, and we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This week, we'll talk about several research studies, but we'll also talk about the Lichen Planopilaris Activity Index, LPPAI, scleroderma, and spondyloarthropathy. We'll dig a bit deeper into those three topics. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. Today we'll review six interesting studies from the past month or two in this area of scarring alopecia. We'll begin by talking about a very interesting study of N-acetylcysteine for lichen planopilaris. We talked last week about N-acetylcysteine for trichotillomania. 1200 milligrams once to twice a day can help some adults. What about N-acetylcysteine for lichen planopilaris? Well, I'll review a very interesting study from Iran, which suggests that, you know what, maybe we should bring it on our list. Certainly we need more studies. Then we'll talk about hydroxychloroquine pigmentation. The literature suggests that 15 to 20% of patients on long-term hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil, can develop pigmentation. Some patients can even develop it soon after starting. What does it look like? Where does it affect? What should we know about it? Then we'll talk about scleroderma, a topic we don't talk a lot about, but it is a type of scarring alopecia, especially when it affects the scalp. We'll talk about linear scleroderma in a very interesting study, looking at the pathology and clinical features of patients with linear scleroderma on coupe de sable, which is a type of linear scleroderma affecting the forehead and has a number of systemic associations Really important for hair specialists to know about linear scleroderma on coupe de sable and the closely related cousin, the Perry-Romberg syndrome. Then we'll talk about linear scleroderma treatments. Very nice study from Poland back in late 2021, which put methotrexate at the top of the list of most effective treatments for linear scleroderma on coupe de sable. I think it's really important that we know that. And of course, we need more studies in this challenging condition. Then we'll talk about dissecting cellulitis, a type of scarring alopecia that typically affects men. Black and Hispanic men in their 20s and 30s are commonly affected. Really nice study from Brazil looks at dissecting cellulitis in women, a study of 17 patients. I think in my travels that dissecting cellulitis may be more common in certain areas of the world, and many of my colleagues from Brazil certainly see dissecting cellulitis fairly common, so I do wonder if it is increased in some parts of the world, but a very nice study looking at dissecting cellulitis in women. We don't often see dissecting cellulitis in women, 
in our North American patients. And then we'll talk about a very interesting study of dissecting cellulitis associated with spondyloarthropathy. You know, spondyloarthropathy is an autoimmune condition affecting the spine, the axial skeleton, but it has peripheral joint involvement. It can have uveitis. It can have elevated CRP. It can have Achilles tendon issues. It's a very wide spectrum condition, but I think the world is becoming to appreciate this concept of spondyloarthropathy a lot more. And I'd like to review with you what spondyloarthropathy is and why we need to probably ask about it in our patients with dissecting cellulitis. It's incredibly underdiagnosed in the world. And so I'd like to introduce you to uh, spondyloarthropathy so that when you have patients with various autoimmune conditions that you can ask about potential spondyloarthropathy signs and symptoms in your patients who say, you know what doc, I didn't mention, but I have back pain. Back pain that's not improved with rest. Back pain that's better with exercise. Back pain that wakes you up in the middle of the night and you have to get out of bed because it's so frustratingly uncomfortable. These are the features of spondyloarthropathy. So we'll take a look at it and we'll talk about dissecting cellulitis and its association with spondyloarthropathy. So the references for all the studies I'll mention today are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin by talking about N-acetylcysteine for lichen planopilaris. And I'm sure you'll find this an interesting study, and I hope you'll find some of the discussion about N-acetylcysteine pretty fascinating. We'll dive progressively deeper into the N-acetylcysteine story. So a very nice study in June published online in Dermatologic Therapy looked at the efficacy, safety, tolerability, and satisfaction of N-acetylcysteine in patients with lichen planopilaris, as well as pentoxifilin, as well as clobetazole. And we'll take a look at this study. It was a randomized triple-arm study. You're very well aware of lichen planopilaris. The scarring alopecia lichen planopilaris is one of the more common scarring alopecias that we see as hair specialists right up there with central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, frontal fibrosing alopecia. These are some of the more common scarring alopecias that we see, and they are challenging to treat sometimes, not always, but there are an array of different treatment options for these conditions. Sometimes we start with a treatment like hydroxychloroquine, topical steroids, steroid injections, we add antihistamines, patient doesn't get better. We decide, are we going to add low-dose naltrexone? Patient doesn't get better. We add topical tacrolimus. We add low-level laser. Patient doesn't get better. We add cyclosporin or methotrexate. Patient doesn't get better. We add a progressively increasing number of treatments. And so there are an array of different treatment options, and some of these treatment options have considerable side effects as we get into more and more immunosuppressing agents. And so isn't it wonderful if an agent comes around that seems to help, but is really associated with minimal side effects? Well, that's where we're going to look today. So lichen planopilaris affects men and women. It often affects the central scalp, can affect eyebrows and eyelashes and body hair, I think we make a lot of huff and fuss about if LPP affects the eyebrows, is it frontal fibrosing alopecia? Well, these are spectrums. Um, there are 82 different presentations of lymphocytic scarring alopecia. And so I do think that there are important differences between classic 
frontal fibrosing alopecia, and classic lichen plano pilaris, but there is a multitude of different clinical presentations. And so I don't get too bothered when a patient with lichen plano pilaris has frontal hairline involvement. We can call it lichen plano pilaris in some cases with frontal hairline involvement. We can call it frontal fibrosing alopecia. There are an array of different treatment options for classic lichen plano pilaris. We order these treatments according to the safety, the affordability, the feasibility, and effectiveness. And this differs from practitioner to practitioner. I particularly like topical steroids and steroid injections, along with hydroxychloroquine, doxycycline, antihistamines. Other practitioners will have slightly different orders, but I order these according to the safety, affordability, feasibility, and effectiveness. If someone says to me, what's the best treatment you think for LPP? I would say probably cyclosporin. But I don't start cyclosporin first, because if I can achieve significant clinical improvement with topical steroids and steroid injections, well, that's wonderful because these are pretty safe long-term. Cyclosporin is not as safe long-term. So here we have studies looking at N-acetylcysteine and pentoxyphylline. N-acetylcysteine is a over-the-counter product in Canada and some parts of the world. It used to be over-the-counter in the U.S. and the FDA recently pulled it from dietary supplements saying that N-acetylcysteine was first approved as a drug in the 1960s, and so we shouldn't be putting it in dietary supplements. And so N-acetylcysteine was available on Amazon.com for many, many, many years, and very recently the FDA said, I don't think it should be in, in dietary supplements, so they've pulled it, but it's available in other countries. N-acetylcysteine has various immunomodulatory, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant properties, antifibrotic properties. Pentoxyphylline is a prescription medication which is used for improving blood flow, and it's used in various peripheral vascular disease states. These are old medications. And so pentoxyphylline is a vasoactive agent. It, it improves blood flow in chronic occlusive peripheral vascular disease. It helps deform red blood cells. But it has all these anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic effects. And so the authors of this study said, hey, let's test whether pentoxyphylline can improve LPP. And they also said, hey, N-acetylcysteine has anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic properties. Let's test if it can improve LPP. This was a study which set out to address the safety, tolerability, and effectiveness in N-acetylcysteine and pentoxyphylline in a very small study, and it was a randomized controlled trial. It's a very nice study. It's a small study, but it's a very nice study, and I congratulate the authors for pursuing this study. I really think it's wonderful. Of course, we need bigger studies. Of course, there are limitations to this study, and we're going to review that, but these are the kind of questions that we need to address. So there was three arms in this study, three treatment groups. Clobetazole alone had 10 patients. Clobetazole with pentoxyphylline, that had 10 patients. And clobetazole with N-acetylcysteine, that had 10 patients. 600 milligrams twice a day. And so the authors assessed the disease activity of the LPP at the beginning of therapy, and then again at month two, and then again at month four, to determine if 
Do any of these treatment arms reduce disease activity? Does it reduce redness? Does it reduce scaling? Does it reduce the pull test? Does it reduce further hair loss? And we'll take a look at that because that is, by definition, the lichen planopilaris activity index. And so the author set out to figure out if pentoxyphylline and N-acetylcysteine reduce the LPPAI. So if you're not familiar with the LPPAI, or the Lichen Planopilaris Activity Index, here's a wonderful junction for us to review this. It's really important for you as a practitioner to understand what the LPPAI is. I really think it's a very interesting scale. It has its limitations, but let's take a look at it and how we calculate the LPPAI. To calculate the activity of Lichen Planopilaris, we ask the patient three questions. How itchy are you? How much burning do you have? How tender is your scalp? And they rate those on a scale of zero to three. And then, after asking those three questions, it's up to the clinician to go figure out some things. The first three questions we ask the patient. They're responsible for giving us the answers. But the next five questions are up to the clinician. How much redness is present? How much redness is present around the hairs? How much scale is present? Is the, is the pull test positive or negative? And is the hair loss getting worse since last visit? And so you calculate various scores based on those five items and you come up with the LPPAI. And there's a fancy formula. You take the symptoms, you add up the score, you divide it by three. You take those exam features, you add it up, you divide by three. You add the pull test results and multiply it by 2.5 and then you take the score for progression and you multiply it by 0.75. And you get the LPPAI. And if you're listening on various podcast channels, you can uh, check out this LPPAI on the YouTube channel, or you can look at it on our website. But the LPPAI is a pretty standard measure of LPP activity. So if the LPPAI goes down after a treatment is administered, it means that, hey, the treatment is reducing inflammation. So what were the results at two months? Well, after two months of therapy, there was no statistically meaningful difference between the LPPAI or the severity of itching, burning, or pain, or perifollicular erythema, or scale. However, disease spreading seemed to be more significantly halted in patients receiving combo therapy compared to those receiving only the topical corticosteroid. And that was true for pentoxyphylline and antacetylcysteine. So at two months, it seemed to help reduce some features of disease spreading. After four months, 44% of the clobetazole-only patients had a positive pull test. Compared to zero patients with clobetazole-pentoxyphylline and zero patients with clobetazole-antacetylcysteine. And this was statistically significant. So it seems like these drugs reduce the pull test. And disease spreading seemed to be more significantly reduced with combo treatment compared to clobetazole only. Overall, there was a decline in the LPP activity index, this score in all three groups. In the clobetazole only group, it reduced by 47%. In the clobetazole pentoxyphylline group, it reduced by 75%. And that wasn't statistically significant compared to the clobetazole-only group. But in the clobetazole-N-acetylcysteine group, it reduced by 82%. And 
And this was statistically significant from the clobetazole-only group. So what did patients think of these treatments? Well, patients were more satisfied with using clobetazole than with using clobetazole and pills. I think that needs more expl exploration and explanation. But about 80% of patients receiving clobetazole only rated their satisfaction at moderate to high to excellent, compared to 56% of those with N-acetylcysteine. In this particular study, patients using clobetazole only were not given a placebo pill. So sometimes in a classic triple-arm randomized placebo-controlled trial, patients in a clobetazole-only group would put clobetazole on their scalp, and they might also take a placebo pill to try to get a sense of, you know, what is the placebo effect of patients using a tablet? Uh, but that wasn't done in this group. So what were the side effects? Well, in the clobetazole-only group, 10 patients, one patient had disease aggravation, and they were excluded from the study after two months. In the N-acetylcysteine group, one patient had disease aggravation, and they were excluded from the study at the end of one month. Pentoxifiline was associated with slightly greater proportion of side effects. There was two patients. One had nausea, one had hypotension, and they withdrew from the study. So in the end, we started out with 10 in each group. There was 9 in the clobetazole group, 9 in the N-acetylcysteine group, and 8 in the pentoxifiline group. So this is an interesting study. It's a small study, relatively short follow-up, but there's a hint of evidence here that N-acetylcysteine could be a helpful add-on. And given its pretty good safety, some GI side effects, gas, um, GI upset, pretty good safety. I think we need a lot more studies, but it's pretty interesting and pretty promising, and I really like this study. N-acetylcysteine appeared well-tolerated. A greater proportion of patients had a reduction in the LPPAI. Greater proportion had a negative pull test and had their disease halted. And so we talked about N-acetylcysteine last week. We've talked about it actually on prior episodes. It's commonly used in trichotillomania. It is somewhat helpful in trichotillomania in adults. The data is kind of not quite there for children, but in adults it may be helpful. Habit reversal therapy is the most effective. N-acetylcysteine right there, olanzapine right there, clomipramine right there. But in this study, it was 600 milligrams twice a day. Trichotillomania, we use it 1,200 milligrams once to twice a day. And bloating and gas are the side effects. Other side effects are less common. It's absolutely fascinating to follow the N-acetylcysteine story. And if you're not familiar with it, you should Google it and look at the FDA's decisions about N-acetylcysteine. It's by no means over, but in 2020, the FDA started to become concerned about N-acetylcysteine. And this is the U.S. Uh, FDA. And... There was a lot of claims being made by dietary supplements, and the FDA got on this, and the FDA said, just wait. N-acetylcysteine was actually approved as a drug in the 1960s. It's used for 
Tylenol toxicity it's used to protect the kidneys in various contrast reactions. Uh, it's commonly used IV in various parts of medicine. But the FDA said, this is a drug. You can't go putting it in supplements. And so they said, take it out of supplements. And so as of last year, end of last year, Amazon.com took out an acetylcysteine from their supplements. And, and dietary supplement companies across the U.S. said, we can't sell an acetylcysteine. It's available in some parts of the world. There's been a number of rebuttals, and there's been a number of groups that have raised concern. And this is by no means over, but uh, stay tuned. Right now, it's not on the market as an over-the-counter product in the U.S., but uh, the FDA is still looking at this. They said this isn't a closed discussion yet, but it's not widely available. And so we have this LPP first line, second line, and third line treatment grouping. And as many of you know from prior podcasts, I think of treatments in different buckets. First line treatments, second line treatments, third line treatments. And so if someone says to me, what do you start with with LPP? I say, I start with first line treatment. And then what do you do if the first line treatments don't work? Well, I go to second line treatments. What do you do if second line treatments don't work? I go to third line treatments. And so I think N-acetylcysteine deserves a spot as a third line treatment. It's probably at the end of the third line treatments, but it's something to think about. And I think we need more studies, and I'd certainly be interested in your thoughts on N-acetylcysteine and LPP. I think that it's been it's been circulating amongst LPP patients in my practice, in the world, as, as a potential treatment. And so there is more data out there than just these 10 patients, but we need to accumulate that data. You know, this study suggests, yeah, maybe it's a little better than clobetazole. I don't think N-acetylcysteine is going to find a place with some of the other more potent treatments, but it's pretty safe. And gee, it's great to be able to bring on board safe treatments. I like to bring on board safe treatments if they work. I like N-acetylcysteine if it's going to work. I like low-level laser. I like antihistamines. I like low-dose naltrexone. I like topical steroids. Uh, these have pretty good safety profile. And so if I can win the battle against LPP with pretty safe treatments, that's great. If I can't, and I have to go to cyclosporin, methotrexate, mycophenolate, abridging prednisone treatment, well, I will. But... N-acetylcysteine is on the list as a third-line treatment for now. Maybe it'll be booted off the list. Maybe it'll rise to a second-line treatment. More studies are needed. So from N-acetylcysteine, we move now to hydroxychloroquine and hydroxychloroquine pigmentation or melanosis. Hydroxychloroquine is produced generically. It also goes by the well-known trade name Plaquenil. And I mentioned trade names here because many of you are more familiar with Plaquenil than hydroxychloroquine. So a very nice study in rheumatologic clinics looked at the ability of hydroxychloroquine to cause pigmentation or melanosis. And these were authors from Portugal that presented a report of a 29-year-old woman with lupus who had widespread pigmentation, pigmentation of the nails, Pigmentation of the ears, pigmentation of the tongue. She had been on hydroxychloroquine 400 milligrams for 
10 years. And so they describe this nice case report of pigmentation. And the reason I like this is it, it reminds us that this pigment deposit in the back of the eye in the retina is the similar kind of process, at least we have to be thinking about it as the pigmentation deposit in the skin. And so when you say to your patients, I want you to know that one of the side effects is retinopathy. The pigment can deposit in the back of the eye. There's a 1% chance of retinopathy after five years, 10 years. Then it rises to 2% by the end of 10 years. Then it rises to 20% by 20 years. As soon as you say retinopathy, you have to, in the same breath, say, and it can sometimes cause pigmentation of the skin. Shins are really common. Sometimes it's on the face. It looks like a dirty brown pigmentation, sometimes a darker gray pigmentation. The authors in this study remind us that maybe 10 to 15%, maybe 25% of patients on long-term hydroxychloroquine can have hyperpigmentation. So that's pretty significant. And they point out that it can occur on the legs. Anterior shins is pretty common. But the mucosa, the nails, the gums occur on the, on the face. And it often starts as a bruised-like appearance. It can look so much like a bruise that there are reports in the literature of elderly patients using hydroxychloroquine being misdiagnosed as having bruises from elder abuse. A study in dermatologic therapy in 2013 by Philip Cohen, which is free online, showed very nicely this hyperpigmentation of the chest of the face in this woman who was thought to be experiencing elder abuse. And it turned out that she wasn't experiencing elder abuse. She was getting hydroxychloroquine hyperpigmentation or melanosis. But it's a wonderful report which reminds us that it starts out as this subtle bruise-like appearance and then becomes more pigmented over time. It can occur quickly. It's not necessarily just a side effect of long-term therapy. It can start within a year. It can start within a matter of months. The pigmentation itself doesn't have any adverse sequelae. The pigmentation in the retina can affect vision. It can cause a retinopathy. The pigmentation in the skin does not. But it has a cosmetic significant significance, and some patients don't like this. After discontinuing the drug, if patients do get pigmentation issues, it often fades, but it doesn't always. And some patients can have persistent um, pigmentation. So, really nice report, which just reminds us about these side effects. When we have to counsel patients on hydroxychloroquine about the eye side effects, about the pigmentation-related side effects, about the changes in blood counts that can occur, about the uh, hepatitis or the aggravation, elevation of liver enzymes, which rarely can occur. So let's turn now to scleroderma. Scleroderma is a topic we don't often talk about on this podcast, but it's an important subject for hair practitioners to know about. And a very nice study in the JEADV, June 2022, looked at the clinical, epidemiological, trichoscopic, and histopathological features of linear morphia on the scalp, both on Coupe de Saab and Peri-Romberg syndrome. And we'll talk about these. I think it's really important that you know about on Coupe de Saab and you know about Peri-Romberg syndrome. So what is scleroderma? Scleroderma. It's a connective tissue disorder 
characterized by increased production of collagen. And there's many different types of scleroderma, but they all are associated with this increased collagen. And this increased collagen or fibrosis can occur in the skin. It can occur in organs in the body, in the kidneys, in the lungs, in other parts of the body. And it's really important to understand this systemic involvement because to recognize that your patient might have systemic scleroderma or scler systemic sclerosis is really important because they need rapid referral to rheumatology. But there are these localized forms that we see in clinic often. And so in scleroderma, there's a localized scleroderma and there's a systemic scleroderma. The localized scleroderma is more likely to present to hair clinic. And there's many different variants of localized scleroderma. And this is where you have this fibrosis localized in the skin, often into more contained areas. But there's a circumscribed morphia, a linear scleroderma that we'll talk about in a minute, a generalized morphia, pansclerotic morphia, and a mixed morphia. Those are the classifications of localized scleroderma. And then we have a systemic scleroderma where patients can have involvement of the internal organs. And there's a limited cutaneous form and a diffuse cutaneous form. We'll spend a lot of time talking about localized scleroderma because these are the patients that are going to present to hair clinic often. Even though these conditions are relatively rare, one in, th in 30,000 for some of these localized scleroderma forms. But localized forms of scleroderma are these fibrotic conditions that are confined to the skin and the area below the skin, the subcutaneous tissues. Caucasians are more affected than other racial backgrounds. Localized scleroderma affects females more than males. It can affect children. It can affect adults. And the distribution in both those age groups is fairly similar. Systemic scleroderma is very different. It's sometimes called systemic sclerosis, and it involves not only the skin, but the internal organs. And you can imagine if you get fibrosis in the internal organs, the internal organs don't work as well. And so you get respiratory issues, you get kidney issues, you get heart issues, you get digestive issues. And we can divide systemic sclerosis into this limited and diffuse form, as I mentioned. So we'll talk about linear scleroderma. Linear scleroderma is a form of localized scleroderma that affects the skin, and it occurs in a line, often in a line. And there's three variants. A variant on the trunk or limbs. A head, and, a head variant, which is called coupe de saw, which we'll take a look at in a minute, which is important for us as hair specialists to know about. And then the Perry-Romberg syndrome. Linear scleroderma is histologically similar to morphia. And morphia is a skin fibrotic condition that can affect children and adults where they get these circular areas of lilac-colored scar tissue forming on the skin. But instead of having these patches of scar tissue forming on the skin, they have it forming on the head, scalp, forehead. In the head and neck variant, it affects the scalp and the forehead. In the limb variant and trunk variant, it can affect an, a limb, can go across a limb. But let's take a look at linear scleroderma on coupe de saw. This is the form of linear scleroderma that you really need to know about. It's a form of linear scleroderma involving the face or the scalp, 
Patients often develop a hypopigmented or hyperpigmented streak on the forehead. And the name on coupe de sable comes from the concept that it resembles a blow from a saber sword. And this term was coined by the French to describe the injury and the wound that soldiers, foot soldiers can experience when a saber sword strikes the face. And so patients with on coupe de sable, or linear scleroderma on coupe de sable, have this scar, this linear scar developing across the forehead, sometimes extending down towards the eye, sometimes maintaining its position more in the scalp. But it becomes redder over time, it becomes more indurated over time, it dips down in the skin, you can palpate it when you run your hand across the forehead. And there are a number of free reports online where you can see very nice pictures of on coupe de sable in case reports and other studies where authors have granted permission to, to show their patients. And there's often this discoloration that begins in the forehead initially, and sometimes initially it can be very subtle. And I would say for every patient that I see with on coupe de sable, I see one patient who wonders if they have on coupe de sable, because once patients start learning about this condition, it becomes terrifying. And so it's really important to know how to distinguish on coupe de sable. What are the clinical features? And the reason I like this report in JEADV is it gives us some information on what to look for and what does the pathology show in linear scleroderma. So linear scleroderma often affects children. It can affect adults. It affects females to a slightly greater extent than males, maybe two to one. It can appear in, appear in the first two decades of life. It can occur older, but a study from Mayo suggested the average age of onset was 13.6. Another study from Wisconsin said 6.9, or seven years of age. And these are very typical of these studies of rare diseases. If you're looking for a number, it's very frustrating because you won't find a number. What's the average age of onset of on coupe de sauve? Well, one study is 14, one study it's 7. So you have to be aware of this variation in data. That's what happens with rare diseases. We have this data that's kind of all over the place. That's normal. But the skin of the forehead may be hard and shiny. There may be hair loss affecting the scalp. But what's so important when you see a child or an adult with on coupe de sauve is you have to be thinking... Not only does this patient have skin involvement, but they may have eye involvement and they may have brain involvement and they may have other systemic features as well. And so you really have to screen well for neurologic issues. You may consider doing an MRI in children. You may send them off to an ophthalmologist to check the eye. Uh, you have to be thinking about the systemic features when you have a child or an adult that comes into clinic with uncoupe de sable. So what's Perry-Romberg syndrome? Well, Perry-Romberg syndrome is a condition called hemifacial atrophy, where you get a caving in of the skin of the face, often on the left side, but it can be both sides. It can be the right side. But the skin over top is often normal. And it's currently thought to be an autoimmune disease, and it's currently thought to be related to linear scleroderma on coupe de sable. They're thought to be very closely related. And many patients with linear scleroderma have Perry-Romberg syndrome. And again, there's some nice reports online whereby authors give permission to publish their case reports, and so you can see Perry-Romberg syndrome quite easily. 
Many of the reports online have this facial atrophy on the left side. Uh, that's one of the more common areas. 85% of patients have that side affected. So in Ankuptasab, the skin is affected. It's injurated. It dips down. In uh, Peri-Romberg syndrome, the skin is often fairly normal, but it's everything underneath that's affected. Many patients with Peri-Romberg syndrome have linear scleroderma, and they're thought to be very closely related. And it's thought that Peri-Romberg syndrome coexists in 20 to 30 to 40 percent of patients with Ankuptasab. There's a, f a male to female ratio of two to three, so it's more common in females. Left side of the face is more affected, the right side is less commonly affected, and affects the facial muscles, the muscles of chewing, as well as the temporal muscles. And in Ankuptasab or Peri-Romberg syndrome, you have to ask about eye issues, you have to send these patients off to ophthalmologists. In Peri-Romberg syndrome, you have to send them to dentists, you have to get the chewing analyzed, you send them to plastic surgeon to help with treatments and reconstruction once the disease is, is calmed down. And brain MRI may be important in the neurologic sequelae of these conditions. So a nice study by Demarsalak in JEADV looking at linear scleroderma and Ankuptasab. And this is one of the largest studies of linear scleroderma of the scalp. At 1 in 30,000 patients with linear um, scleroderma and localized scleroderma, you can realize that these aren't common conditions. And so our studies of these conditions don't have 12,000 patients. This is a study of 31 patients. 27 had linear scleroderma, 5 had Peri-Romberg syndrome, the median age was 32, and it ranged from 7 to 69. Three-quarters of patients were female. About half of patients with this linear scleroderma were of light-colored skin, and alopecia affecting the frontal scalp or frontal parietal scalp was present in about 60% of patients. About half of patients had a linear-shaped area, like a line, and about 35% had a shape that was round. And nearly all patients had atrophy. So you run your hand across this groove, or you run your hand in the scalp, and it dips down. So there's atrophy but there was redness in 71%. There was a color change, a dispigmentation in half of patients, and there was scaling in 30% of patients. And so early linear scleroderma can sometimes fool you. Late-stage disease can often be identified readily, but early-stage disease can sometimes look like discoid lupus. It can sometimes look like a patch of dermatomyositis. It can sometimes look like lichen planopilaris, and the biopsy can sometimes look like those issues. And so the authors looked at some of the biopsy features of linear scleroderma. Atrophy was present in 80% of patients, not surprisingly. 72% of patients had perivascular infiltrates. There was pigment incontinence in 50%. There was perifollicular fibrosis in 40%, which we so often see in LPP. There was mucin in 50%, which we often see in connective tissue diseases. But 56.3% of biopsies had inflammation around the nerves, perineural, perineural lymphocytic inflammation. So I think that's really important because these may be important distinguishing features of early linear scleroderma. Patients were treated with topical steroids, systemic steroids, topical tacrolimus, and methotrexate was a common treatment in these patients as well. 
and 100% were treated with methotrexate. Some patients also had autologous fat grafting. So this is a really interesting study. We don't talk a lot about linear scleroderma on Coupe de Saab. We certainly don't talk a lot about Perry-Romberg syndrome. It's important to recognize it. It's important to diagnose it properly. It's important to rule out patients who think they have on Coupe de Saab when they don't, to have eye screening, to have neurologic screening, especially in children, adults as well, but to... Um, to rule out underlying seizure disorders and other neurologic disorders, and to realize that the biopsy may show this perineural inflammation in a high percentage of patients. And the realization that early-stage disease may mimic discoid lupus, LPP, and dermatomyositis, so to be aware of that. So from linear scleroderma epidemiology, let's take a look at linear scleroderma treatments and a very nice study from Poland. And it was a systematic literature review of what works for Oncuptisob in children. And this was a study published last year, at the end of the year, looking at both children and adults. So they wanted to look at what works in Oncuptisob in children and adults, at least what we understand now. So there was 34 articles that they retrieved, 69 patients, 38 were children, 31 were adults. Methotrexate was the most commonly investigated treatment and had a pretty good response rate and 100% of patients had some response to methotrexate for linear scleroderma Oncuptisob in children or adults. And so when I see linear scleroderma Oncuptisob, in children, in adults. Methotrexate is my go-to. I often use topical tacrolimus. I may use other treatments as well, but methotrexate is the starting treatment option. This study showed nicely that there's other treatments to consider, but they're not as thoroughly investigated as methotrexate. But there's systemic steroids. There's UVA1. There's mycophenolate mofetil. There's hydroxychloroquine. There's abatacept tocilizumab, cyclosporin, interferon gamma, PUVA, narrowband UVB. There's pulse dye laser. But methotrexate has the best evidence. Hopefully there'll be better options in the future for this challenging condition, but methotrexate is really a first-line agent for linear scleroderma on Coupe-Tosob in children and adults. When the disease is stable, we start tapering treatment, but it's, it's needed for a varying length of time. And sometimes we need it for... Six months, eight months, sometimes we need it for two years, three years. But methotrexate is the go-to. So we turn now to two studies of dissecting cellulitis. Dissecting cellulitis is a scarring alopecia that occurs in black and Hispanic men. It's a very disabling condition. It affects young males. The scalp smells sometimes. It drains pus. It drains serosanguinous discharge sometimes. It has a very concerning presentation sometimes. It's very psychologically disabling to have dissecting cellulitis. We are getting better and better at treating it, and we reviewed some great treatments uh, in the prior podcast about dissecting cellulitis. But here we have a study by colleagues in Brazil looking at dissecting cellulitis in women, and I really like this study. But dissecting cellulitis can occur by itself, But some patients have 
discharge and boils in the armpits and groin, we call that hidradenitis separativa. Some patients have a bad form of acne called acne conglobata, and some patients have pylonidal cysts. And so dissecting cellulitis with hidradenitis and acne conglobata, we call that the follicular occlusion triad. And when you add on pylonidal cysts, if your patient has all four, we say that's the follicular occlusion tetrad. And we call this the follicular occlusion triad or tetrad because we think the pathology and the pathogenesis is similar, that we get this early closure of the follicular wall and this collapse of the follicular wall, and this leads to secondary bacterial infection and inflammation. But it's clear that there's probably more to dissecting cellulitis than just a story of follicular occlusion. Dissecting cellulitis is more common in men than women, as I mentioned. And authors from Brazil set out to look at the features of dissecting cellulitis in women. 17 females, median age 19, it ranged from 13 to 68. These were patients with light skin types. Fitzpatrick skin types range from type 2 to 5, but a large percentage of patients were type 2 or 3, 70%. 82% of patients had a normal body mass index. They were not overweight or obese, which we often see in hidradenitis. We often see in dissecting cellulitis in males. They were non-smokers. We know that smoking increases the risk of hidradenitis. We think it increases the risk of dissecting cellulitis as well. And these were patients with Caucasian hair, so not Afro-textured hair or curlier hair types, but Caucasian hair types. And 41% of these women had hidradenitis separativa, which is quite a bit higher than the statistic that we expect in dissecting cellulitis, where we expect 10, 15% or so of patients to have hidradenitis. The most common area was the vertex followed by the occipital area, so that's where the dissecting cellulitis affected women. They had pain, they had nodules, they had fistulas, they had abscesses. Uh, those are common presenting symptoms in dissecting cellulitis. Painful nodules were present in 94% of patients, and that's really a, an important clinical feature in the early presenting features. When you see a patient with what looks like alopecia areata, and you look at it and you think, salopecia areata. After all, there's even an exclamation mark here. There's black dots, broken hairs, a nice circular patch. Classic dice, classic alopecia areata. But then you press on it, it's kind of boggy, meaning spongy. You have to consider dissecting cellulitis. It's a wonderful mimicker of alopecia areata. And in this study, Cultures were negative in 83% of patients, not surprising. Cultures are often negative, and that's surprising because when you look at the scalp and the way it smells, you would think that this culture has to be positive for all sorts of bacteria, but it often comes back negative. What were the treatments in these women? Well, 94% had used isotretinoin at some point. 64% used doxycycline at some point. Those are common treatments for dissecting cellulitis. We often use TNF inhibitors as well. We don't use isotretinoin and doxycycline together, so it's important to be aware of that as those increase intracerebral pressures. This is a really nice study. I really liked this study of dissecting cellulitis in women. It highlights that dissecting cellulitis occurs in women. It may be more commonly associated with hidradenitis separativa, so we have to ask about discharge in the armpit, discharge in the groin, 
We have to ask about acne. We have to ask about palonidal cysts. And as we'll see in the next study, we have to ask about spinal disease. We have to ask about eye disease, uveitis. We have to ask about peripheral arthritis. We have to ask about um, other features of dactylitis. We have to ask about the nails. Um, so we have to ask about features of spondyloarthropathy as well. And we'll see that in the next study. But in women with painful nodules, you have to think about infection. You have to think about other causes of nodules, other inflammatory diseases, but you certainly have to think about dissecting cellulitis. And so finally, let's talk about dissecting cellulitis associated with spondyloarthropathy. And we'll talk about what is spondyloarthropathy. So dissecting cellulitis certainly can occur by itself. The patient has sinus tracts, they have these nodules, they have these inflammatory areas on the scalp, and that's all they have. They don't have hydradenitis separativa, they don't have acne congobata, they don't have the follicular occlusion triad or tetrad. But it can have systemic features, and we talked about this follicular occlusion triad and tetrad, but patients can also have spinal disease, and we don't talk about that a lot, but I think we need to, because I don't think we fully understand the frequency of spinal disease or disease of the axial skeleton or spondyloarthropathy in patients with dissecting cellulitis, or actually in patients with a lot of these autoimmune scalp conditions. We're so focused on the scalp that we forget to ask about the eyes and uh, the swallowing in the esophagus. We miss, I'm sure, esophageal lichen planus. We don't ask about the gums all that often. We don't ask about the nails all the time. We don't ask about other systemic features enough with these conditions that we treat, but we certainly need to, and this will be an important theme that we touch upon over and over on the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. But here we're talking about spinal disease and dissecting cellulitis. It's pretty clear that you can have the seronegative peripheral arthritis or this axial spondyloarthropathy in hydradenitis or in acne congobata. That's really well established. How commonly it occurs in dissecting cellulitis, not so common, not so well understood. But given that dissecting cellulitis is really a cousin of hydradenitis, whatever works in hydradenitis probably works in dissecting cellulitis. So these are cousins. I think we need to pay a lot more attention to spondyloarthropathy. This is an autoimmune condition, and it affects the axial skeleton as well as other features as well, and that's what we're going to talk about. So the spondyloarthropathies are a group of inflammatory joint conditions that affect the joints but also have various systemic features. Spondyloarthropathy consists of many conditions in that family, Ankylosing spondylitis is one of them. There's reactive arthritis. There's the spondylitis associated with psoriasis. There's the spondylitis associated with inflammatory bowel disease. There's a spondylitis, which is uh, an undifferentiated form. There's a lot of overlap between these spondyloarthropathies. Some patients are HLB, HLA-B27 positive. And so HLA-B27 positivity is not just ankylosing spondylitis, although that's commonly a common association with ankylosing spondylitis, but 
many of these spondyloarthropathies have HLA-B27 positivity. Patients with spondyloarthropathies can have a sacroiliitis or inflammation in the hips. They can have inflammation in the emphases. They can have an Achilles tendon issue where it's painful to walk on the heel. They can have a uveitis. They can have eye involvement. They can have a whole range of systemic issues. They can have a sausage digit. And so it's really important to recognize spondyloarthropathy in your language. It will be the rheumatologist that is going to manage and help you with spondyloarthropathy, but unless you recognize it, you may not connect the patient to the spondyloarthropathy. These conditions are dramatically underdiagnosed. So I really like this publication by Ward and colleagues, which described very simply a 33-year-old male with dissecting cellulitis that presented with a spondyloarthropathy. His MRI showed a sacroiliitis. He was initially started on methotrexate, but he ultimately stopped because he was concerned about side effects. He was then recommended to start a TNF inhibitor, which can be effective for some of these spondyloarthropathies. They can be effective for dissecting cellulitis. Adalimumab, for example, is often used, but he declined that treatment. And what really makes this report by Ward and colleagues so nice, and the reason I appreciate this very much, is they dig into the medical literature at all the cases of dissecting cellulitis that have been published associated with a spondyloarthropathy. And they found 12 patients. There was 11 male patients, one female patients. All were of African-American or Afro-Caribbean ancestry. Nine of those 12 patients with dissecting cellulitis and a spondyloarthropathy had the follicular occlusion triad. Two patients had dissecting cellulitis only, no triad. One patient had dissecting cellulitis with ankylosing spondylitis. Eleven patients had a peripheral inflammatory arthritis. So not only this axial skeleton involvement, but this peripheral arthritis. And one just had the axial skeleton only. But eight of these 12 patients had symptomatic disease of the cervical or lumbar spine. One had Achilles tendonitis, one had arthritis of the acromioclavicular joint, one had arthritis of the sternoclavicular joint. These are up in the, in the shoulders, in the breastbone. None of these 12 patients had psoriasis, uveitis, or inflammatory bowel disease. So I think it's really important for us to be thinking about spondyloarthropathy. We don't need to be experts in spondyloarthropathy. These are fascinating and challenging conditions. But when we have patients with dissecting cellulitis and we have patients with other conditions, we need to ask, do you have any joint pains? Do you have any swollen digits? Do you have any pain in the hips? Do you wake up with hip pain? Do you wake up in the middle of the night with hip pain? Is your hips really stiff in the morning and once you get going, it feels better? These are inflammatory back pain symptoms. I'm going to talk about it. But in all these 12 patients, the scalp lesions came before the spinal disease. And so if you see a patient with dissecting cellulitis and a clinician says to you, I just read a paper or I just heard on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast that some of those patients with dissecting cellulitis can have spondyloarthropathy. Did you think my patient had spondyloarthropathy? 
Well, you might want to perform some basic screens, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But remember, many of these patients will go on to develop spondyloarthropathy later, after the dissecting cellulitis. So we need to ask about these issues in follow-up. It can be a year that it develops. It can be 10 years down the road before spondyloarthropathy develops. And remember, not all patients develop spondyloarthropathy. And so this is a very nice study. It reminds us that spondyloarthropathy can develop in patients with dissecting cellulitis. It can develop in patients who don't have hydradenitis, acne conglobata, and we need to ask about these symptoms. And if you suspect spondyloarthropathy, you might want to refer to your rheumatologist. That would be my recommendation. The rheumatologist may order an MRI, and I usually leave that to the MRI to the rheumatologist. Sometimes a rheumatologist will say to me, listen, it's going to be a long wait. Can you go ahead and order an MRI? Great, I will. But the thing that's so important is it's really important for this imaging of the MRI to be read by an MSK expert, an MSK radiology expert. And so if I'm going to refer to a rheumatologist at a teaching center, they will have colleagues at that teaching center that are just specialized in musculoskeletal radiology. And they're wonderful to be reading these MRIs or x-rays of the axial skeleton. And that's why I sometimes just don't send an MRI or send an x-ray off to the clinic down the street. I want experts to read the imaging. So let's talk about inflammatory back pain. I don't think you need to be an expert in spondyloarthropathy, but there's some real simple questions that you can ask a patient to give you a clue that they might have spondyloarthropathy. And there's various criteria for inflammatory back pain. You don't need to know about these, but one is the Callan criteria, one is the Berlin criteria, and one is the ASAS criteria. But the key here is that many of these patients have morning stiffness in the back. It improves with exercise. They may have buttocks pain that alternates. They wake up in the middle of the night and they have to get out of bed. And it doesn't improve with rest. It improves with exercise. These patients say, I got to get up and move. This is so sore. I got to get up and move. And usually these patients with spondyloarthropathy are under 40. And so those are very simple questions that you can ask patients to get a sense of inflammatory back pain. And these Kalin criteria, Berlin criteria, and ASAS are, are on the YouTube video presentation of this podcast. And there's various criteria. If you get two, two of them right or four of them right or etc. There's a various sensitivity and specificity for inflammatory back pain. But spondyloarthropathy is this group of conditions where patients have an autoimmune condition of the axial spine and uh, peripheral joints sometimes as well. And the ASAS, or the Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society, has these criteria. And if you have sacroiliitis on imaging, and you have one feature of spondyloarthropathy from this list. And you can say the patient has spondyloarthropathy. If the patient is HLA B27 positive, and they have two features from this list, then you can say they have spondyloarthropathy. And this list is a sausage digit, inflammation in one of the fingers, toes, looks like a sausage. Or they have psoriasis, or they have a positive family history of spondyloarthropathy, or they have inflammatory back pain that we talked about, or they get a really nice response when they use NSAIDs, non-steroidal, or they have heel pain, or they have arthritis, or they have Crohn's or colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, 
or they have increased CRP on blood tests, or they have uveitis. Those are criteria where if they have one or two of those as well, then they have spondyloarthropathy. And so sometimes as we're waiting for the rheumatology referral in a patient with back pain, you know, I'm a little leery about ordering the imaging, but I might if I'm if I know the patient is going to get it done at a good center with good radiologists who who know how to read these X-rays and MRIs. But I'll say to the rheumatologist, I'm sending you a patient. I'm wondering about spondyloarthropathy. I ordered the HLA B27. I know it can occur in 10% of the population normally, and you probably don't want me to order this, but I'm going to order the HLA B27. 70% of patients with spondyloarthropathy have this HLA-B27 positivity, and this is even higher in ankylosing spondylitis. I'm going to ask the patient about heel pain. I'm going to ask the patient about, you know, dactylitis in the past. I'm going to order a CRP. I'm going to ask the patient if they've used NSAIDs in the past, ibuprofen and other NSAIDs. How did it improve? And I'm going to put this in my consult note. You know, dear Dr. So-and-so rheumatologist, thank you so much for seeing this patient of mine with dissecting cellulitis. You know, I'm wondering if the patient could have um, spondyloarthropathy. He has hip pain, wakes him up at night, he's got to get out of bed. It alternates buttocks to buttocks. It's really sore. It improves with exercise. He's got to keep moving. He's had a sausage digit in the past. He brings in a photo of this swollen finger in the past. He sometimes takes ibuprofen because it makes it better. He's got a family history of um, spondyloarthropathy. I ordered a CRP, came back hmm, middle of the range. He's had some eye symptoms in the past, a red eye, but he's never had a workup. The rheumatologist is going to get that referral and say, hey, I think this is a more urgent referral. It sounds like uh, Dr. Jeff is thinking about spondyloarthropathy, and, and that's going to get that patient in sooner. If I just say, hey, Dr. Rheumatologist, see this patient with spondyloarthropathy, I'm wondering, thank you. Um, there's not going to be an urgent triaging of that referral. So I try to do as much as I can, my due diligence in evaluating spondyloarthropathy. If you're comfortable with that, by all means do that. And my goal here is to introduce you to the features of spondyloarthropathy. Uh, if you're comfortable with it, great. If you're not, it's okay too. But it's massively underdiagnosed, and I think we need to think about that. So that's it for this week. I really want to thank you for joining me for another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is all about scarring alopecia. And today we reviewed N-acetylcysteine for lichen plano pilaris. Small study. 10 patients receiving N-acetylcysteine. 10 patients receiving pentoxyphylline. 10 patients receiving clobetazole only. Suggested that, hey, maybe N-acetylcysteine was an effective agent to reduce the LPPAI. We talked about hydroxychloroquine pigmentation and the fact that Maybe 10, 20, 25% of patients on long-term hydroxychloroquine can get melanosis or pigmentation. We talked about linear scleroderma, which we don't often talk about, this Oncoupe de Saab subtype and the Peri-Romberg syndrome, which is a closely related cousin and many patients have both. We talked about the fact that biopsies of Oncoupe de Saab often show perineural inflammation. We talked about treatments for linear scleroderma from this study in Poland that suggested that methotrexate in the current day is at the top of the list for first-line agents. Might not be forever, but for now it is. Then we talked about dissecting cellulitis in women. A nice study from Brazil of 17 patients 
describing the epidemiologic and treatment features of dissecting cellulitis in women. And then we talked about dissecting cellulitis-associated spondyloarthropathy. And this patient which had sacroiliitis on imaging and these 12 patients in the literature which have features of spondyloarthropathy. And I introduced you to inflammatory back pain and the ASAS criteria for spondyloarthropathy. Feel free to, you know, ask about spinal disease in your patient that says, my back is so sore. I'm only 35. I'm only 25. Doesn't this happen more to older people? The patient may be telling you they have inflammatory back pain and these are massively underdiagnosed. It could be another three, five, ten years before that patient gets diagnosed in some cases. And so keep inflammatory back pain on your list. We always welcome your comments and suggestions were available at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back for the fourth Monday of the month. And we're talking about a potpourri of studies of various studies that have been published in the medical literature in the past month or two. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair.